Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Acts chapter 7. When you have found Acts chapter 7, it would be so kind as to the reading of the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning, Acts chapter 7. And it reads like this, starting in verse number 1. It says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, speaking of Stephen, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared. Father, this morning we have been so blessed by our time together as we fellowshiped around your word in Sunday school, as we sang your praises, as we witnessed the the transformation of a life as demonstrated through baptism this morning, Father, and now as we gather around your word. I ask this of you that you speak in your still small voice, make us to hear that our lives may be changed when we leave this place for your honor and for your glory alone. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, as we were looking at the end of uh, chapter 6, so we're looking at the end of chapter 6, we saw Stephen standing accused before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin court, made up of those religious leaders, had been a little upset at his message. (laughs) They were a lot upset at his message, actually. They were mad that the message of Jesus Christ, being the Messiah, was still being preached among those Jews that had, had come there to Jerusalem. They saw more and more of the Jewish faith, so to speak, those Judaites that were believing in this Jesus Christ. um, And they realized they they had killed this man. They had killed this man to stop his message, yet this message was still growing. They had, they had brought before them Peter and John and they had chastised them to never speak the name again, yet others came. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 20,000 now had come to believe in this name of Jesus and his salvation. The salvation that this morning you saw uh, witnessed before you and Lydia saying that she is trusted in this Jesus. There were Jews that were gathered there in, in Jerusalem that were turning from the religious uh, beliefs, the society of the religious community there and, and were believing in this Jesus Christ. And, and now they had this one voice that seemed to stand out amongst all the others as the church had, had chosen these men to, to serve those Greek-speaking Jews that were, were there. And, and this one person's head had, had risen above the crowd because he was so fervent in preaching the message. And they had him standing there before them in the court. And they intended to punish him for this message. It wasn't going to be a slap on the wrist and, and a release. If you remember, though, as he stood before that court, it told us there in the, the last verse of chapter 6, that as they gazed upon him, they saw the face of an angel. They saw the face of an angel. They tried to stop the spread of the gospel by attacking Peter and John. Satan had attempted to stop the spread of the gospel by attacking the church. Uh, from without as well as from within with, with sin in the, in the church. And, it, and at every turn, Satan was attacking this church to stop the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not a lot different than it is today. You think about it. I'm afraid in my lifetime, what I do today will more than likely be very limited or illegal because of the way our society's headed. 
Satan is attempting to stop the name of Jesus Christ from going out because it is only in the name of Jesus Christ that you can have a relationship with God. And what does Satan not want? You to have a relationship with the one true God. See, the high priest starts by asking Stephen this question in verse number one. He says this, are these things so? Well, if you haven't been with us, you're probably wondering, what are these things? What are the things he's referring to? Well, they're referring to the attack that they had, uh, the accusations that they had against Stephen back in in, uh, chapter 6. And the attack came in basically four generalized areas. There were four things that they accused Stephen of. Number one, they accused him in verse 11 of blasphemy against God. Blasphemy against God. Also in verse 11, they accused him of the second thing, which was blasphemy against Moses. Then in verse 13, they accused him of blasphemy against the law itself. And also in that 13th verse of chapter 6, they accused him of blasphemy against the temple. (laughs) A cursory glance at this list of the accusations tells us a whole lot about this religious system now, doesn't it? It tells us a lot about their religious system. See, they had this picture of God. And they had this picture of God that did not include Jesus. Understand that the Jews had a picture of God that did not include Jesus. Yes, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking far off for a Messiah. But if you remember, they thought this Messiah was going to ride into town and overthrow this government. That he was going to be a governmental Messiah. He was going to to free them from the burden of the government that they were under and, and place them as the center of all things because they were God's chosen people. And they thought his Messiah would come straddle a horse right into the town and he would, he would wipe out the, the governmental system that was overriding them and set himself as the, the leader and they would be the prominent people. See, when they looked at this God, that's, that's the lens that they, they looked at him through. They thought that the Messiah would be another ruler over them and a ruler that would support what they believed. So that was one picture we get looking at their list of accusations. The the second thing we get as we we think about their list of accusations, they believe the prophets are old were some kind of special when it came to men. Some kind of special. (laughs) It's interesting as you read through uh, the Old Testament and you see the stories, you can also start to believe that they were special. And they were in one sense. They were called out, but you know they were men just like us. They were humans just like us that were used by God for a very specific task, a very specific thing. But what they never understood is that the prophets, the prophets were not the secret, that that they were only prophesying what God intended for them to prophesy. See, they saw those prophets as special, but they never understood the fact it was God speaking through them that made them a prophet, not the fact that they woke up one night thinking of something that would really help out the Israelites and they were going to prophesy to the Israelites this was what was going to happen. No, they were the mouthpiece, the oracle of the Almighty God. So a messed up view of God gives you a messed up view of the prophets. You know, who also can look at that list of accusations and understand that they believe the law was the right way to a relationship with God. How do we know that? How many laws did it start off with? Ten. Yeah, it wasn't a trick question. It wasn't a trick question. There were ten. How many laws do you think they wound up with in that religious society, that religious system? Upwards of 600. 600. They threw in extras just to make sure that if we at least keep this one, we won't break the big one. See, it came, became all about the, the rights and wrongs. It came all about the do's and don'ts. 
To them, they didn't judge you by how much you loved God. They judged you by how well did you keep the law? You see, their whole system had become law-based. <laughs> You're probably saying, Pastor, that doesn't mean much to me. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. Most Christians today live a law-based Christianity. How do I know? I get asked all the time. Pastor, do you think it's okay to do this? Should I not do that? You know, we look at the do's and adults and we say, hey, as long as we have more goods than bads, we must be in a right relationship with God. You know, God never gave you the law to be in relationship with him. He gave you the law to make sure you understood you needed a relationship with him. See, there's not a one of us that could keep the law. There's only 10. Would anybody dare raise your hand and say you've kept all 10? Five, four, three, two, just one. Come on. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we've kept none. None. If the law was the way to God, you know what we're doing today? Wasting our time. If we've broken the law and we can't have a relationship, why are we here? I know it's because the pastor's so good looking. <laughs> I just saw somebody throw up on the second row. No, we're gathered here because we love God with all of our heart and we understand the fact that we cannot keep the law. See, that's the point. We can't. We need a Savior. And guess what? You can't find a Savior among us because none of us have kept the law. So where are we going to find a Savior? Is it going to be in a lamb or a goat like the old days? No. Those were a foreshadowing of the Savior. The Savior had to be spotless. No sin involved in his life whatsoever. He had to be able to keep the law. And there was only one found. Where was he found? He was found in God himself. He sent his only begotten son, sinless, to live a life on this earth as, as a, a, a stand-in, as one who could, could live that law perfectly, no sin, it says in the Word, having been deluged, having been bombarded with all temptations as even we are, yet sinless. And when He went and died on the cross in your place, He became your sinless sacrifice. You see, and they held tightly to the law as their way, not realizing the law was put here to point them to Jesus on the cross. You see, and then there was that fourth thing that they... they said about Stephen, they said, you know what, Stephen? This Stephen, he even blasphemes our temple. Well, that says a lot about what they believe, too. You know, they were real big on places. <laughs> they were real big on things. If you remember that temple, they even had within that temple a veil that separated the ordinary people from the Holy of Holies, where the ark was at, where they thought God was. But remember the cross I mentioned of Jesus Christ? See, that curtain had been there in that temple signifying there was a separation. But there was something very interesting that happened that day that Jesus died for your sin and mine. As he hung upon that cross and accepted our sin on him in our place before an almighty God, that curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. And it's significant that it was top to bottom. It's also significant it was feet thick, not inches. It was ripped from top to bottom by God, signifying the fact that the door had been opened to his presence. There was no longer a need for a holy place. Why? Because in just a few days after Jesus died, he returned, spent some time with the disciples and others. He went back to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. 
So now there is no separation because if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is in you. And then what does the Bible say you are now in relation to the temple? It says that's what you are. Each of us are the temple because God resides within us if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And they were accusing him of blaspheming this, this temple. And Stephen, along with the other disciples, they had, they had taught this message. They had spoken what Jesus had done in their life. They had spoken about this Jesus so much that it had turned this religious organization upside down. They, they didn't know what to do with it, and, and they intended to stop it. See, all that they were about, all of their income, all of their, their uh, stature in the community was associated to this religious community and who they were in the church. And, and these disciples, these nobodies, had turned that upside down with the name of Jesus. Now Stephen finds himself standing before these religious leaders and, and he's standing there to answer the accusations, these, these accusations that have been brought against him. And, and he does it in a very marvelous way. We're going to try to look this morning at his entire sermon, which starts in verse number 1 and ends in verse number 53. I heard a gasp from the back corner of the room. <laughs> You've never seen me preach that many verses. You may not get to see it today, but we're going to make a run at it. <laughs> Stephen could have, could have done a lot of things to, to defend himself. Stephen could have done a lot of things standing before that court to defend himself. He could have called witnesses. He, he could have asked them uh, that, were, that were accusing him, said, repeat exactly what it is I said that was, that was blasphemy against him. He, he could have argued his case from, from reasoning, from, from his own thought process, but Stephen did none of that. Stephen did none of that. The circumstances Stephen found himself in did not change what God was using him for. Understand that. The circumstances you find yourself in does not change your mission. It does not change what God has given you to do, what he's called you out to do. In fact, in fact, the circumstances Stephen found himself in allowed him to fulfill the mission that he had been given. The mission God had given him was the same mission that, that he had given gives to us. Just like I, I read that great commission where we're sent out. You know, we're, we're sent out to live a gospel-transformed life in the lives of others, like Miss Lydia that they may go forth to live a gospel-transformed life in the life of others. It's called disciples making disciples. You see, what Stephen knew is he had been around those disciples of Jesus, and, and he had come to be a disciple of Jesus, and now he understood it was for him to go out and to live that discipled life in the life of others that they may become a disciple, that they may become a believer in Jesus Christ. See, his mission was to make disciples. And this circumstance he found himself in didn't change the mission. It gave him a greater opportunity to fulfill the mission. So how did he go about making disciples? How did he go about it? How did he fulfill his, his mission in this chapter? See, I find it interesting. What he started with is what we usually go to when we have no other answer. He started with the truth of God's word. Not only to defend himself, but also to put on display this God. This God that has sent a Savior. And to put on display that Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. See, as he stood to defend himself against the accusations, he put front and center Jesus. See, that Sanhedrin knew who this Jesus was. Don't think that this was a shock to them. Because understand, this is no more than weeks, maybe months at most, since they had Jesus standing in their midst also. If you remember, they had accusations against him. One of those was, he says, 
He said he was God. Stephen's going to answer that for him as he defends himself too. This same Sanhedrin had been the one that, that had looked Jesus in the eye. They'd been the one that were involved in his trials. They had been the one that put him to death. They, they were the ones that said, don't worry about releasing him. His blood will be on our hands. We know how to handle this. They knew. They knew who this Jesus was as a man. And now Stephen was going to use the Bible that they had, the only Bible that they had, which is the Old Testament. He's going to use that Old Testament to show them exactly who this Jesus really is. See, they said first and foremost that he blasphemed God. Notice how he starts in his response in the second verse. He says, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared. He sets the record right off the start. He says, brethren. Why did he say brethren? He said brethren because he wanted them to understand, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm not one from outside somewhere. I'm one of you. Previous to me knowing who this Jesus was, I was in your, your temple. I worshiped with you. As a matter of fact, even says brethren and, and fathers as a, as a sign of respect for their place in the religious community. But then he goes on to say, God of glory appeared. Wow. He sets the record straight not only in what he thought about them and being one of them, but he set the record straight about who he thought this God was and believed him to be. He believed him to be the God of glory. See, God's glory is the sum of all of his attributes. When we say we give God glory, we are looking at all of his attributes, and they are many. You know, we say that God is faithful, and we know that he is. We say that God is merciful, and if you've ever been forgiven of your sins, you know that you have experienced the mercy of God. You also, if you've been saved, you know that God is gracious. He has given that to you which you could not earn, which you did not deserve, and that is salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. We also know that God is righteous. There is no wavering with God. That which he says is truth, that which he displays is truth, and he is righteous in all things. We also know that he is loving. We know that God is loving. There's not a person here, whether saved or unsaved, that can't say that God is not loving because God has loved us in many ways. You can look outside today. What a beautiful day it is. If for nothing else, he's loved you today with a beautiful sight for you to see, beautiful weather to to be in, beautiful people to be with. God has loved us through his son, Jesus Christ, and saving us by putting his own son to death. You know, and God is also just. See, it tells us that God is love in the Bible, and yes, He is. He gives us the opportunity to salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. No other way. Not in our good works. We weren't born Christians. You become a Christian when you realize that you have sinned against a holy God. That you have broken those commandments, those laws, that you have not been able to keep those things even once. And we become a Christian when we realize that sin in our life has separated us from that holy God. And to fix that, we must trust in what Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, did for us on a cross. We must must come to realize that he loved us through Jesus Christ and we have that opportunity for salvation. But we may also, we must actually understand that the rejection of that Jesus that died for our sins, saying, I don't need him, I'm good enough. I've done the right things. From a little child, I have lived the right way. By saying, I don't need Jesus, I've I've got a way to God. By doing that and rejecting Jesus, you'll find out one day that God is very just. There will come a day of judgment. 
What have you done with this Jesus? And if your answer is anything other than accepting him as both my Savior and my Lord, then he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You will spend eternity in a place called hell where there's gnashing of teeth and separation from the love of God for all of eternity. You see, we can't just take God as God of love without flipping the corn over and understanding that he's a just God too. What makes him loving is the fact that he's just. The fact that he's fair. But you know, there's an attribute that's even greater than all those I mentioned about God that really encircles all of those and wraps all of those into one. And it's the fact that God is holy. God is holy. He's different than than any that, that there ever has been, any that there ever will be. He is holy. And he is holy and worthy of our honor, our praise, and our worship. You see, that's what Stephen is saying when he says this God of glory, he appeared. And and you know what? They would have agreed with Stephen. He started at a place that they would agree with him. He started on a truth that they even accepted the fact that this God is awesome. You see, even though they approached a relationship with God in a different manner from a religious side instead of a side of faith, they, they believed that this God was a glorious God. A glorious God. And now Stephen explains to them why God is the God of glory. We'll move quickly through this text. He does it by showing them this plan of redemption that God has, this redemptive plan throughout all of history. He moves through that redemptive plan to answer for them what he believes about this God that they said that he had blasphemed. And even in the Old Testament, he reaches back into the Old Testament and he pulls out of the Old Testament those passages, those pictures of Jesus from things that they would have believed in that they held dearly to. He glorifies God by starting at the call of God to his people. Look at that second verse. In that second verse where he says the God of glory appeared, he says to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. He reminds them of the story of Abraham. That they revered Abraham. They thought he was, he was the father of the Jewish community. They they looked up to him and all that he did. And the story of the father Abraham is a story of God's call. God's call to a people to be his own. He reminds them that God called Abraham out. He says there he in verse 3, he said to them, get out of your country and from your relatives. He reminds them, this, this God, this almighty God, he called out this father Abraham. You think so much of it? He, he called him out to leave his country, to to leave his relatives, to set him apart from all those things that he had been tied to all of his life. He then reminds him that God called Abraham in in that fourth verse. He says, uh, in the end of that third verse, he says, and come to a land that I will show you. So he called him out of one land and called him into another land without telling him what that land was. We know the story. He's headed towards Canaan. But he calls him out. He says, remember this Abraham, this great God that you say I blaspheme? I believe that he called Abraham, your people, our people, my people out to set them apart into a new place. He then goes on in verse 4 to say that Abraham was called out. He says, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. He says, Abraham answered that call. He says, so the God of glory called him out. Abraham answered the call. And he came out. He stopped short. He stopped short in a place called Haran. And he stayed there until his father died. But says then it says in the second part of that fourth verse, it says um, that he, he came out of the land of Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran, and from there when his father had died, he, 
moved him to this land in which you now dwell. The he there, it is capitalized because it's the first part of a sentence maybe in your Bible, but it's definitely capitalized because the one who called him out and moved him was this almighty God. You see, that's what Steve is telling him. He says, this Abraham that you hold so firmly to has the, the same God that I believe in, the God that called him out. Abraham went and God moved him into this land. He even puts an exclamation point on it whenever he says, this land in which you now dwell. He says, this place that you sit, this, this place that we gathered, this is the land of the Almighty God. See, he's making a defense of himself, but he's telling them about this God and God's redemptive plan. But the story of Abraham is not just a story of people being relocated to to be set apart for God. God intended for his people to be set apart and to be totally dependent upon him. Totally dependent and devoted to him. See, in verse 5, in verse 5 he said, And God gave him no inheritance in it. He says, He moved him to here, gave him no inheritance, not even enough to set his foot on. God calls him out of a place that he had family and land. He he moves him to a place that he has nothing, not even a place to stand. You see, God gave them no inheritance. There was nothing there that they were to own. There was not even a place to set their foot. But he goes on in that fifth verse, but he says, but even when Abraham had no children, He promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. He called Abraham out. Abraham responded. Abraham's moved to a land that he has no possessions, but God makes a promise. How many of you know that God's a promise keeper? You see, he made a promise to Abraham. He says, you have nowhere to set your foot now, but look around. This is going to be yours. Not only yours, but it's going to be all of your descendants. Of course, it's kind of interesting. At that time, Abraham, Abram, as he's known, had no descendants. We know the story. We know the story how God makes to Abraham a covenant with him, with him about his descendants. And you see, God made the promise here and that setting him apart and asking him to be faithful to an almighty God. See, when Stephen stands before him, he says, I believe in this God that your father, my father Abraham, had faith in. He said, that's the God that I believe in. See, God tells him that his his inheritance through his descendants would would come in a little difficult way also. He says in verse 6, But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land. They would bring them into bondage and oppress them for some 400 years. He said, this God, this almighty God, this father Abraham that came out and and was moved to a place and and said, you will have this at one time, but there's going to be a time that you're going to be in this bondage. See, we know the story of the Old Testament. They were in bondage. They were brick masons, brick makers is what they really were, forced to make brick with no straw. They, They were put in bondage. But God says, don't worry. He says in the seventh verse, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So he's talking about this God of Abraham, this God that's so wonderful that he called them out. And even in bondage, he didn't leave them. He promised to bring them out, to judge that nation and to place them in this land to serve him, to worship him. How do we know that he was faithful in this? God made a covenant with Abraham that you see there in that 8th verse. In that 8th verse, he's, it says that he 
gave him the covenant of circumcision. It's the first place that you see circumcision in Scripture, and it's a covenant between God and man that he, that God, he would be faithful to his promise. He goes on to tell us that this Abram, Abraham that had no children begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, as the covenant said, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. You see, they he moves from this glorious picture of God down through the history of this glorious God working through the, the leaders of Israel, and now he lands here on these twelve patriarchs. Who are the twelve patriarchs? It's the sons of Jacob. He picks one of those out as he as he goes through it. He tells a story about this one to give them a picture, a foreshadowing of who this Jesus was that they decided to kill. He actually, here in Scripture, pulls back out of the Old Testament a, a picture of Jesus in the life of this man named Joseph. Don't know if you've ever thought about Joseph as a picture of Jesus, but that's what he is, a foreshadowing. If you remember this this. Uh, 12, there was one that seemed to be special, that had dreams and told the others, one day you're going to bow down to me. One day there's going to be these things happen. He tells the other 11 these dreams. Needless to say, none of them were really happy about it. How do we know that? Because they wound up out in the field one day tending the sheep and Joseph was sent by his father to them to check on them, to take on some things, to, to, to look after them, see if there was anything they needed to, to go out and help them. And what was their response to him? threw him in a well, sold him to a caravan as they passed. Pulled him up out of the caravan, sold him off, put blood on his clothes, and went back to the father and said, we lost Joseph. He was killed. He's gone. They, they sold him off because they rejected his help. They rejected him whenever he came. They didn't want anything to do with him. But Joseph had been sent by his father to check on his brothers. Yet they didn't want him. They sold him off for a small penance. See the picture of Jesus as it starts? Jesus was sent by the Father for us, yet many reject him. Right down to the point that one of his own sold him for a few coins to those that would hang him on a cross. You start to see the picture of Jesus? <laughs> you see, all they could see in Joseph was the fact that he had told them about him being their Lord over them at some point. They didn't know the whole picture. They would have rejoiced in that. Now, wouldn't they? They would have rejoiced. In Genesis 37, go home and read it this afternoon. What a, what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. See, this was an indictment of Israel by Stephen. Stephen was actually indicting Israel about this, about this Jesus when he brought this up. When, he, when Jesus came the first time, they rejected him. He did not fit that mold that they had for Messiah. They, they didn't want anything to do with him. And, and this leads to the next point about this famine that came up, this famine that showed up when Joseph had been sold off and hauled off into the land. It, it says there in Scripture in verse 11 of Acts 7, it says, Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no substance. All of a sudden, all of a sudden this famine shows up. Well, you know the story. During this time, it, it tells us this great famine arose, and the famine was so bad, it, it says in verse 12, that, that Jacob heard that there was this, this grain that was available in this place called Egypt. This, this place called Egypt had this grain, so, so he, sends, he sends his son to Egypt to get this food. They wind up, when they go to get the food, standing in the presence of 
Joseph, their brother, not realizing that's who their brother was. But, but the Pharaoh had found such favor in this Joseph that he had put him over all things, all that he had. And the first time they come, they don't know who this Joseph is. And if you remember, Joseph gives them some things, sends them away, but does it in such a fashion that they would return, that they would return. The second time they came, it tells us there in verse 13, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. The second time they returned, Joseph reveals who he is. Not only does he reveal himself to them, but he reveals them to this Pharaoh, to the Pharaoh. What happens when he does that? All of Jacob's family is saved. They're delivered from the family. Because Joseph, Jacob's son, sins for him. And they bring the family into Pharaoh's house. And they're delivered. You see, he's also telling them that, hey, you rejected this Jesus when he came the first time. You'll have no choice but know who he is the second time. It says there will be another time that he will be revealed. Jacob and his entire family were saved. You see, Joseph is in fact a foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament. He tells this story as he's defending his belief about this holy, almighty, glorious God. His story points towards this Jesus. Remember his mission? It wasn't to be found faultless. It was to point him to the one who is faultless. And that's what he's doing. Stephen has made his point. He's made his point that he did not blaspheme God at all. He believed in this, this true God. So Stephen answered the accusation of blasphemy against God by glorifying God in his plan of redemption. That's a message we can take to heart. If for no other reason God is glorious because he's provided for us a plan of redemption. There's not just judgment. There's salvation in the words of the Lord. You see, second, they had, blast, had said that he blasphemed Moses. Instead, he goes on to tell them how much he honors Moses. Look down at that 17th verse. Down at the 17th verse, it says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with all our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. It's kind of interesting how all of a sudden he's moved through this redemptive history and he falls on this place of this Moses that, that he's been accused of, of blaspheming against. The, the time had come, it said, for, for God's promise. God's promise to his people. What is the promise? Remember that they would be brought back into the land and they would serve him, the promise, the Abrahamic covenant. And the time had come for this, this promise to be revealed. There was a problem. The Israelites were in bondage. Not only were they in bondage under a Pharaoh who knew who Joseph was and treated them fairly, but now they were in bondage under a king, a Pharaoh who had no idea who this Joseph was and treated them very unfairly. This new king had taken over. He had, he had no indication of who the Jews were or what Joseph had done. Matter of fact, it even says in that 19th verse, in that 19th verse, he was making them expose their babies so that they might not live. We know the story. We find the story in Exodus chapter 1. 
What did he mean by exposing the babies? See, the Hebrews were expanding in the region. They were having children. They were growing in great numbers. The Pharaoh was scared that they would get to such great numbers they could overrun him. So how was he going to stop this? We'll get rid of all the newborn males. We'll get rid of the newborn males. That way they can't populate. They, they, they can't grow any bigger. We'll get rid of them. And how did he choose to do it? He decided that he would take all the newborn Hebrew babies and toss them in the river. He drowned. Remember the story? And they all were thrown in, including Moses. A little different with Moses, though. When he landed, he landed in a basket. Remember the story? He was floating down the river. Sister was running down the side of the bank watching. He just happened to, surely it was a coincidence, he floated up to Pharaoh's daughter. He floats up to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter says, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, he says here, verse 21. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. So here's this Moses. This Moses, you said, I blaspheme. I believe Moses is somebody very different. Stephen says, I believe Moses was sent by God and placed specially in a basket that he may live because he was going to be your deliverer. He was going to be your deliverer. It says that she saw him and she, she took him in. What significance did I have in his life? The 22nd verse says he learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. He grew up. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh with the best of education. Grew up in Pharaoh's house, but he never forgot who he was. He never forgot who he was. God considered him special. He gave him the ability to to learn those things, but God had a plan for him. God had a a plan for him. It says there in in, uh, the 23rd verse, when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart that, you know what? I'm really a Hebrew. I may live in Pharaoh's house, but I'm really a Hebrew. I I need to go see my brethren. It goes on to tell us there in the the next few verses, in 24th verse especially, it says as he went, he saw this Egyptian who was, was beating on one of the Hebrew people, and he stepped in. And in the melee, he killed the Egyptian. He not only killed him, but he buried him as to hide his transgression. But he saved this Egyptian. It goes on to tell us in the next days. It says in the next day, matter of fact, the 26th verse says the very next day, he goes back down to visit them again. After having saved them from this Egyptian that was killing him, he goes back down and there's two of his brethren that are now disputing. He steps in between to, to be their peace, their reconciler. And, and what does it say they say to him in that 27th verse? He says... Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? He steps in to be peace. And they said, who made you ruler and judge? Hmm. Harkens to words said to Jesus at one time, didn't it? (laughs) Who are you? You say that you're God? Who made you God? They go on to say, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? They reject This one who has come that God has placed in a basket in a river to be their deliverer and has stepped in to save them and now brings peace and they reject him. He goes away for 40 some years, gets married. God places on his heart, places on his heart to come back. It says in verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And we remember how he appeared. It was in a burning bush. It was never consumed. What an awesome thought. This Moses who would come, 
He had come and they had rejected him. He had gone away and God says, now's time for you to return. And he tells him through a burning bush that is never consumed. Scripture tells us that he saw the bush and it seemed kind of interesting. And he went over to look at it as he walked up to the bush. As he walked up to the bush, Jesus said, or God said this to him in verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why did he say that? He wanted to remind him there was an Abrahamic covenant that he was about to be a part of. And he says, and Moses trembled and dared not look. I think that's the understatement of the passage. It says, then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. He was standing in the presence of God. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. What was Moses? He was to be their deliverer. He was to be their deliverer. Stephen tells them, Stephen tells them he has nothing blasphemous to say about this Moses. It's because of this Moses that they were delivered from bondage. He says, why would I speak against this Moses? He was God's man sent to deliver his people of whom, brethren, I am one. He says he was sent to to deliver. It was this Moses that God did wonders and signs, it says in, in the passage through in verse 36. It was this Moses that brought the people across the Red Sea. It was this Moses that was in the wilderness with them. And then Stephen reminds them that it was not him who blasphemed Moses. It was the people who rejected Jesus. Look at verse 35. I rejected Moses. He says, this Moses whom they rejected. Who are the they? The Jews. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made him ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He says he brought him out. After he'd shown him wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. He said, you know what? <laughs> you rejected Moses. Guess what? There was one like Moses. His name was Jesus. And you've rejected him too. You've rejected him too. There are two more accusations that they raised against Stephen. And in two weeks, we'll look at those together. But let me ask you this this morning. Are we kind of callous sometimes to what God has done for us? We look at past history, sometimes get very religious about what we do in our churches and in our lives. We try to weigh out on the balance of our good and our bad to see if our relationship with God is what it should be. Let me ask you this morning to do you really believe that God is the glorious God of all creation? That God created this world that we live in to be a worshiper of Him? Not only us as the people, but remember what Scripture says. If we refuse, if we refuse to worship this Almighty God, who's going to sing? Said the rocks. All of creation. He created all that we see today with a purpose is to worship Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him for who He is and what He's done. But sin entered. 
Do we really believe that God loved us enough to create us to worship Him? And then do we understand that we sinned against this God that did all this? Do we understand this God of glory loved us with everything that He was right down to His only begotten Son? Yet we have chosen to sin against Him. Don't point the finger at anybody else. Don't do as we hear on TV when it comes to those, those Dr. Phil and all. You know, I only did it because of the way I was raised. No. Don't, don't take this wrong, but God doesn't care how you were raised. The fault in sin lies in each of us. It's not in what mom and dad did. It's not in the opportunities we've had in life. It's not in the circumstances that come in our way. It, it's in us. It's our choice. We're born with an inclination to sin in our lives. If we say we have not sinned, what does the Bible say? We've made God a liar. That's what it says. If we say we're good enough to get there on our own, we have not sinned, we don't need Jesus, God's a liar. I know God's not a liar. God is faithful. He is just. And He's given a promise that is held through the Scripture we've seen today. And there's this redemptive plan. Do, do we really believe that this God loved us through His Son, Jesus Christ, even though we chose to sin against Him? And if we believe that, has it first and foremost changed our allegiance in our life? Have we changed our allegiance from what we desire to what God desires? It's not easy. Nowhere in Scripture does it say being a Christian is easy. No, it absolutely says being a Christian will get you persecuted. That's what it says. It says being a Christian is going to be difficult. But is there anything in life that's easy that's worth it at the end of the day? To me, not. See, to be a Christian means that our allegiance changes from that which we desire to that which God desires. And what does God desire? God desires us to be a worshiper of Him, just as He created us to be. He desires us to be the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. The image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He desires us to lead others to glorify Him, to worship Him by being Christ-like in their life. I ask you this morning, are we leaning too much on our religious beliefs and too little on who this God really is and what He's done? Stephen lays out a pretty good case this morning. He lays out a pretty good case of who this God is. What God's done through great prophets and patriarchs of the past. But all of those things point to one thing that there's a man named Jesus that would be the ultimate, only sacrifice for our sins. Do you know him as Lord and Savior this morning? If today you stood before him, you stood at the gate and were asked, why should you be allowed to come in? What would be your answer? Are you going to give him a list of things that you've done right since birth, hoping that it gets you in? Or are you going to say, my list failed, so I put all of my faith in what Jesus Christ did, the perfect sacrifice? If not, this morning, I will be glad to tell you during our invitation, if you want to meet me right down here, how you can have that faith and hope in Jesus Christ. But the question doesn't stop there. If, in fact, you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, who have you told lately? The commandment that you heard me read, the commissioning from the water, says that we are to go. It doesn't say when it's easy. It doesn't say if you desire to. It doesn't say occasionally. It says go. 
go into all the world and make disciples. I believe just knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior isn't the full fulfillment of your salvation. Yes, that gets you to a place called heaven. Yes, that puts you in a right relationship with God. But if your relationship with God is truly what it should be, the desire of your heart is to tell others about it. Where do we stand, church? Where do we stand on telling others about it? Where do we stand on living that life of Christ in them? You know, this morning, maybe you know Jesus, but you can't honestly say that there's been a time recently that you've told someone about how awesome this God is. You know, there's more to church than this time on Sunday morning together. There's more to church to church than just seeing someone be baptized. What if we had to line them up at the pool every Sunday morning and you didn't have to sit and listen to me preach because there was no time left? I expected an amen on that one. <laughs> you know, where, where does the desire of our heart lie? Where does it lie? This morning, is it in our religiousness or is it in Christ who died for our sin? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.